Radio shows you love from the people you know. This is Sam Talks Technology. I'm super excited. I've got a good friend of mine here with me today. It's Katz Keeley. Hello, Katz. Hi. Now, for those of you who don't know who Katz is, of course, that's irrelevant. But we're going to learn over the next hour and a half who you are and what you do. And we've just had a lovely coffee and a little snack at Cooper's here in Marlow. And I'm just fascinated. I am truly fascinated. I've been listening to Cats on a podcast this morning, um, and I think you're going to really enjoy this. So before we begin, let's find out who you are and what do you do? So uh, what do I do? We were talking about this before. What I am and what I do are very different. But what I'm doing now is I'm running a company called Beep, the Behavioral Empowerment Enterprise Platform. Um which is trying to figure out how we can help large corporates be more people-centric and therefore more successful. Okay. And it's in the area of more successful within corporate transformation? It's in the area of when, people, when corporates talk about transformation, they often talk about digital transformation. When they talk about digital transformation, they think that's all about technology. So we can just buy another license and that will fix everything. But what I've learned over the years is that digital transformation comes from cultural things. So unless people are in a state where they want to accept that technology, they'll resist it. And so trying to, trying to just solve everything by buying a license is not the answer. Okay, so before we get into how Beep works and what you've been doing with it and I have to tease you now. There's a great story coming up about the UN and Beep, by the way. Um, and there's stuff about Burning Man and there is so much more that I... And punk bands. I mean, I, it, the list goes on. It's just crazy. But before we get into all of that fun and what you've done, um, let's start somewhere nearer the beginning. University. How did you get into this world that you're in now? How? What was the path that took you there? So um, I was one of those strange creatures at school that was equally comfortable with science and arts. I've never seen the difference between those two things. So I started doing science A-levels and art A-level. So as we say, you'd be happy with STEAM now. I am STEAM woman. Yes, I am actually STEAM part. Science, technology, (laughs) art and... Engineering, arts, yes. Yes, and mechanics. Mm, Yes. Yes. Um... So during my A-levels, my school told me that I had to stop doing the art A-level because they thought it was distracting my science studies, which I'm not sure I ever really got over. So um, I started doing a biology and chemistry degree, hated it because it was all about uh, not questioning facts. There was nothing creative in there at all. So I moved from there over to a television and theatre degree, uh, which was like heaven. For somebody who'd been studying sciences, um, it was three years of learning about the technology of television, the technology of theatre, but also performing, writing. It was like an all-round training in all things creative and tech, so it was dreamy for me. Um, then I then I did a master's degree in screenwriting, um, which was and has been... Again, you know, when you're working in film... Um, Each individual uh, has their own skill, but each individual on their own is nothing. Right. Whereas the whole joy of making a film is you come together in this uh, team, which is so much greater than the individual parts. It's 
Um, so, uh, so film was is a passion of mine. Making stuff with people is a passion of mine, or was at the beginning of my career. Okay, but that's not wh- where you are today. So, what no. took you from that? What what journey did you go on? So, um, as I was saying, I got pregnant when I was at university. Okay, and I had uh, she. My daughter is the best mistake I ever made. Um, and so the career that I'd planned wasn't going to happen. So I had to have a more portfolio career. So what I did originally was I did lots of um, production design and art direction for pop promos, etc. And the money I made from that, I'd put into artworks. Um, so they were always very experiential artworks, always using technology, but in, in different ways. And I won't talk about that now, but... Um, I've always been very, very interested in creating experiences where you can bring people together and magic happens when they're together that couldn't happen otherwise. Um, And then in 1998, I worked with an incredible woman called Ghislaine Boddington, who you should totally interview. Okay, love uh, to. Who is my hero in many ways. Uh, We did a project which was, which uh, we were looking at the relationship between clubbing and contemporary art. And so we did is this there, project. Sorry, there was a relationship. You, you, you sat down and thought, there has got to be a relationship between clubbing and contemporary art. No one has that thought. Uh, apart, well, apart from, from you. people <laughs> like us, yes. Okay, I, I, I question everything. Okay, good. <laughs> I never had that thought. I just thought I'd let you know. Um, and we decided to do a project uh, which was using the, this incredible new thing called the internet. To, um, to do a project. And the project was that um, in a club in London, contemporary dancer walks onto the dance floor, clears a space. Uh, the same thing is happening in a club in Germany. Uh, and then a screen comes on, and these two dancers, these two contemporary dancers, start dancing together through the screen. Uh, and it was the most beautiful moment for me. And uh, coming from... Not partic- yeah, I, I've come from. A, I was a punk at that point in time, so I was all about how do you, uh, how do you make the world more connected? How do you change the way things are? I've always been fascinated by that. Um, and what I was seeing there in this experience are two people who've come together to make something happen that isn't possible without any middleman being involved in it, and it fascinated me. I was just like, this is the beginning of a new world. Um, so then after that. We managed to get um, digital with everything. I was just digital <laughs> geek girl then. I just wanted to. So the year after that, then we made uh, the University of Florida came and asked me whether or not it was possible to do a performance where we had performers in every place in the world, uh, in every continent. Okay. But actually, wherever you were in the world, you could see the same performance live. And me being me, I kind of went, yeah, of course we can. Turned out that was quite difficult <laughs> because the technology was What, what wasn't sort of year are we looking at, roughly? So this was um, 99. Okay, very, very early. I mean, Very early. I mean, we, we were talking mainly dial-up still. No, probably beyond dial-up, first broadband. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, was, it, was an, it wasn't an easy project to make, but we made it happen. And it was experimental and it wasn't perfect, but who cares? You know, it was, it was those days when, and you were there, it, everything was possible because yeah. you didn't quite know what real was because nobody had quite figured out how to yeah, use it. Yeah, we were at the bleeding edge of it all. Totally, yeah. Um, and then we managed to get the BBC to give us quite a healthy sum of money to do a commissioning scheme. 
because they'd had their, their first website and they didn't quite know what to do with the website or what to put on it or how to get people using it. There was a, it was that period of experimentation. We spent two years commissioning um, commissioning projects and so they had to have a piece of content that lived on bbc.co.uk but there also had to be a performative element. Um, that relationship between real and digital has always been fascinating to me anyway. Um, so over the two years we commissioned 12 pieces of work um, and this was 2000 and we were using technology that even now would seem incredibly sort of forward thinking as an example we commissioned a piece of work by uh, a performance art company called Blast Theory uh, and the project was ca called Can You See Me Now Okay. Um, and what would happen is you'd, uh, there'd be a, a map on the screen uh, at a particular time, people from across the world would then join each other on this map. They'd get themselves a little avatar, move the avatar around the streets of a city. So that was the online experience. Right. The real experience at the same time is the performers were running around those streets of that city trying to find your avatar. So you could hear... This a is early stream. Pokemon, really, then. It's exactly that. <laughs> so when Pokemon happened, I was like, oh, thank God, they've caught up. <laughs> well, I, I mean... Please continue with that story. But I, while you were telling your earlier story, I was thinking VR to you must be an exciting new frontier again. Well, it's again, it's just that AR and VR have been part of the conversation for me for the last 20 years. So oh, okay. It's just like, well, so what do we do with them? Unless we can figure out what the um, what the kind of killer app yeah. is. You know, so, so um, I did a talk uh, about 10 years ago about augmented reality. Um and it's exciting to a point, and there are things that can be done with it. But the truth of the scenario is unless we have the right technology to be able to experience that. So as an example, if you're talking about an outside use of augmented reality and you have to pick up your phone to pick up the augmented content, nobody's going to do that. And if they do, they'll have their phone nicked. So it's, it's like it, there's, we're still trying to figure out what all of this stuff means. Yeah, we haven't got the interface, I think. It's not Google Glass. It's not... It's not, but it's something It's not your phone. It. It's, yeah, somebody, someone smarter than me will come up with what that interface should look like, I guess. Yes. And I, I can't wait for those days. And I've got to say that... I, yeah, I've, I've, yeah. I'm with you. I, I want to live in an augmented reality world already. Yes. So, so my mother had um, Alzheimer's, as an example. We're skipping all over the place. This is fun. We will get back on track. Um, Don't worry. She had, uh, she had Alzheimer's. So for her, if I could have in some way given her contact lenses by which I could tag the things around her, that would have made her quality life absolutely exponentially better because actually where does memory fit in a world where you can tag objects? And people. Yeah. I mean, we were just having a conversation before we came on. You know, people have forgotten to read maps because we we subjugate that back to Google Maps, for example, and we yeah. don't have to remember those twenty numbers because they're in our iPhone. You know, we just pick up our phone and dial, and we don't remember the number. I no. So yeah, I actually I forgot my own number the other day, which was <laughs> embarrassing. But anyway, <laughs> we are becoming we we are becoming. Um, too attached to technology. Right. So I yeah. digressed you. Yes. You, were, you were talking about the fact you were putting house music and contemporary music together in a virtual space together or two spaces at the same time. Go I on. was. And then I was talking about um, the commissioning experiences where we used 3D film. We used, I mean, but technologies that 
were incredibly forward thinking at that particular time. And so because of those two years, I had the opportunity to deep dive into the possibilities of digital in a way that probably nobody else could because I was being paid to do that. Um, so I could see what was going to happen in the world. And over that time, I also had, um, I, I built this big ecosystem of very smart young things or not so young things who were using digital technology to do things that have never been possible before. Right. And in this new world, people could make things happen, you know, just like that super quick um and so then i could also see that we were heading towards a new era this kind of era of convergence this digital era uh where i could see that the big old-fashioned companies uh if they didn't figure out what digital meant and was going to mean to the world they were going to really struggle to keep up with this incredibly accelerated path of change and in hindsight we've now seen that happen haven't we we've seen the dinosaurs begin to die Yes, absolutely. And the talent magnets thriving more than ever. But that I could see that in 2003. It was as clear as day to me. Oh, yeah. I mean, the high street was dead before it knew it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so then I set up a company then in 2003, which was all around how do we help big companies um, become uh, ready and fit for this new era? And you can imagine it was quite difficult because in, back in those days, leaders of company were going, oh, it's just a blip. You know, it's uh, this digital thing. It'll come and go like everything else does. And you're going, eh, probably not. Actually. No, I mean, we were saying earlier that, you know, Brexit really is another example of people just saying, I want to go backwards to what I know. I don't yes. like change or, or if it's the change I don't like being a, a part of a, a wider United States of Europe, for want of a better word. Yeah. Um, no one sold us that vision. Uh, but in Europe, mainland Europe, that is a sold vision. You yeah. know, the Germans and French understand that. They, they, they accepted the single currency, the euro. Um, and we yes. over here have, have shied away from that quite a lot, sadly. And that's been a, a, a fault, I think, of media publications selling a negative about Europe. Um, and we, we don't like that. So a lot of people are drifting back to what they thought was the best world that they lived in, which is the past. And many of us yes. want to go forward. And that's where corporates, I think, were. Yeah. I'll be interested as we talk later as to whether you think that's still the case and corporates have now rushing to ad- adapt. But I don't know. We'll come to that. We will. But you started your company to Start- help companies. Yeah. So okay. I guess so now we would be called a digital transformation company. But right. we had no such moniker to hang it on because nobody knew what that meant. Because it was those good old days when we were all just making stuff up and trying to figure out what this new world might look like. On the super highway. On the super highway. <laughs> and I'm still as excited as I was then, so that's good. Um, uh, and so what we did were a couple of things when we first started the company. One of them was uh, because I had this ecosystem of startups and digital agencies and geeky, wonderful people... Uh, And because I knew that the big corporations desperately needed to innovate so that they could keep up with this accelerating rate of change, um, we came up with the very first ever open innovation competition. Uh, And every time I do a conference, and I do many of them, uh, I always say at the beginning, if anyone in this room did an open innovation competition before 2003, please stand up now. Nobody has done so far, so I'm going to carry on saying we did the (laughs) first ever open innovation competition. Um, and that was very much about trying to help uh, because I could see that the startup 
small companies were brilliant and had so many ideas and so much capability and the big companies desperately needed to change so they needed to connect in some way but the small companies really struggled with trying to get in in bed with these big companies and struggle with money all the time yeah the big companies have heaps of money isn't necessarily being spent in the best way but they need to innovate so the open innovation competition was my way our way of trying to figure out how we could build meaningful connections between big companies and startups um, and the way that our open innovation model worked over those first few years was we'd um, we'd help the corporate figure out what their challenge was we'd use our website our platform to um, invite our ecosystem of people to respond to that challenge the more that they got their crowd to vote for their idea, the more chance they'd have of actually getting into the board with us. Uh, so we, we'd use this as a, an opportunity to bring this community of people together to talk about what's possible around the client's need. Um, unfortunately, what we found was that we could find the very best startups and we could teach them how to pitch to the need of the client. And we could bring them into the board and the board would say, we'll commission you and you. And then they'd bring these hungry young things into their company. And then a year later, they'd be chewed up and spat out. But I, I, I still think that's happening today. I mean, look at, look at Instagram, look at WhatsApp. We've lost their CEOs because they didn't adapt to Zuckerberg's model. And that, yes. that seems like an odd thing to say because they're all youngish companies. But, but clearly they didn't want advertising as their model. Um, no. But they were brought in for that. I mean, there's loads of good examples, better than that, yeah. of young companies being brought in and the, the CEOs, the founders, just going, I can't live within this straitjacket of oh, the corporate God. environment. I have to go. Exactly that. And, and I, th I think that's what we then start realising, that um, the operating model, the ways of working, the culture, and actually it took me a while to understand that that cultural piece was the most important piece. Um, unless you can get that right... You can bring the most innovative people in the world in and your corporate antibodies will push them out because your system is built in a way whereby innovation is not okay. Uh, sticking to the rigid pattern of the machine is okay, but anything that questions that is not okay. Yeah, I mean, I have my own personal example. I, I was asked to go to Gateway Computers as their e-commerce director to set up the online business. Yeah, And a, and a guy called Mike Maloney... Lovely, lovely guy. I mean, typically Irish in Dublin, very flamboyant, had the Blarney, ran the phone and print advertising business. So the idea was that you would advertise in all the big papers and then the call to action was pick up a phone and a lovely Irish voice would tell you, would you like an... Yeah, I won't do the accent. I'll stop doing the accent. Do you do um, the accent? No, it goes into <laughs> Indian far too quickly. That's the problem. I haven't got the ability to do accents. I try Welsh. It goes to Indian as well. Um, <laughs> it's just not very good. Um, so, you know, and the, the whole business was built around. Now, Dell at the time had come out with the just-in-time computer online model so i was brought in to try and compete with that and of course i came in i was removing budget from mike i was removing staff from him power base you name it of course all the walls went up the barriers went up i was the pariah um lasted about 18 months i think maybe a little bit more and i just couldn't enjoy it i left i just had to, i said to them look i'm not making the headway we need to I go to a board meeting and you just castigate us because our P&L's low, but you're blocking us yeah. at every path internally. Yeah. And so I was brought in as the ex-Netscape, young, trendy, internet person to make Gateway, you know, compete with yep. Dell. 
and all I got was wall after wall after wall. Yes. I mean, there was a guy called Brian Nelson, the, the legal guy. Oh, my Lord. Could he put up a legal document on me in a, in a hair's beat? You know, it was like, you know, whatever I'd say, no, can't do that, can't do that. But that's what we have to change if we're going to compete. No, nope, you can't do that. Oh, yeah. And so it was better for me to leave than to stick around and take the salary and just bang my head against a brick wall. Oh, God. Which is the most frustrating thing in the universe, isn't it? Yeah. So like, why would anyone spend their one precious life banging their head against that same brick wall? Well, people do. And, I, and unfortunately, I, I was listening again uh, to an earlier podcast of yours. And I think you used the word purpose in there. People have to have a purpose. Yeah. But I also question the fact that on Maslow's hierarchy of need, many people don't even get to the point where they can even think of purpose because they're not beyond security and basic needs. So, so many people don't even have the ability to sit back to think, what is my purpose and can I change my purpose? Because I think a lot of them are just up against the brick wall you know, if I don't feed my children today or tomorrow. And so they shut up to stay put. Do you no, agree? I think you're exactly right. No, I completely agree. And I'm, I'm, although I, I also think that we get caught up, as we were saying on the way here, we get caught up in the mythology that we have to have the next this, the next that. And so that we never get to a point where we have we have our needs met because our needs are fed by all of these kind of unrealistic expectations of what life's about in my humble opinion no no i i, I we are because um we, we are sold advertising i mean in many ways advertising is the 21st century disease because yes. um it fundamentally unrests people to want something that they never probably need yes um you know you you, you will find suddenly you, you, you might have an interest in some area and suddenly an ad will retarget you and retarget you and retarget you. And you eventually buy that thing, whatever it is, is, and you go, actually, I could have done without it. it it's, you know, yeah. the purchase, post-purchase blues yes. of once you've wasted the money. And, oh, that wasn't what I wanted, really, at all. No, and it's, um, it's an interesting... Um, it's funny that people just the, the 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 process of buying a thing is so pleasing, but then, you, like you say, it's it's the experiences that matter. But our generation had less, right? I would say than my children. Yes. And what worries me more today is they are um, the Kardashians are their idols. X Factor is their was not is now, but was for a decade the program of fame and fortune and immediacy um and i I worry that that generation's just i was reading a report that generation is just entering the workspace now and you know they they walk in and they want to be praised at all points they want to be told how great they are and okay we all like that but sometimes the reality of work isn't that so we are we going to have a generation that's going to fail or should they not even be going into that workplace Ah, well, I'm building a platform that's all about rewarding and recognising people all of the time for sitting forward and doing things. So I think it's fine for why would we, and this is, um, I'm posing a question here, so... That's fine. Why would we assume that we can't do that in the workplace? Well, I'm not saying we shouldn't reward. Yeah. But what it is is that, um, you know, mothers and fathers have told little Johnny and Mary how great they are at all points. Schools gave uh, prizes out from first to tenth 
because no one should be first. Do you, you know, and some of life yeah. isn't all about everybody being first and everybody being equal. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Maybe I'm the dinosaur in the room, but um, I, I, I worry. So corporate for me was never a satisfying environment. And I, if I tell my children, I, I don't really want you to go down that road because it's not fulfilling. It's not meaningful. It's not going to give you what you want. But yes. they still don't know what they want because outside of that world, they're being fed a world of flash cars and need and want through advertising. And, and that's where I'm worrying about it. So that's the, that's the workplace workforce going in in the next generation. And what will that mean? At the same time, all of the statistics show, I mean, there, of course, there will be those kind of people. Um, I think there always have been. Um, but all of the statistics show that the vast majority of the next gener of the generation that's um, the youngest generation in work and the next generation, they really care about purpose. They care about purpose of the corporate that they're working for. That's their driver. It's like, well, why would I spend my one precious life working for a brand that doesn't care about me and doesn't care about the world? And that's healthy. That's something that we should be nurturing. No, I, I hope you're right. I hope you're 100% right because um, we were talking earlier about Friedman and how prior to Friedman in the 70s, you know, the, the economic uh, guru, guru, I shouldn't use the word guru. Yeah, that's the him. wrong word. No. <laughs> I can't think of a word right now, but I won't use it. Yeah, no. Um, probably prior to that, actually, companies were caring of the community within John Lewis around here owns a lot of land people can um you know use the golf course if they're a member a partner they didn't even call them members um Bourneville Cadbury yeah. there was lots of those and in 1970 of course he came up with his economic theory about shareholder value and, and the value of that and in that point um you know the asset that was humans became from an asset on the positive side a credit to a debit and and it was a cost suddenly humans became a cost um, rather yes. than an asset to the company, which is where it should be. People should be on the asset side of the accounting page, I reckon. Um, Absolutely. Um, so while we've got that problem for the last, where are we, 70, so last 50 years, right, of people being a problem, I guess what we're looking at or trying to look at is moving people back to the asset side of that equation hundred percent yes because uh it feels to me that since that point we've moved to a point of insanity it's like people have just collectively assumed that that is normal well that's just because generationally that has become normal yeah you know two or three generations away no one i mean i didn't even work in the 70s so you know no, God no. so you know my my father did and he worked for a company and he he, he thought that was it and he it was it was one of those where you work from cradle to grave. I mean, obviously yeah. not, but but that was the idea. And you and retired you, yes. with the golden watch and everyone, that was it, wasn't it? Yes. And you trusted your leaders to do the right thing by the community that was your company. Yes. And the community was within the area you lived in. Yeah. So it was very responsible for a lot of people around you. Yeah. Now, you grew up in Sheffield, you said. I did. So you would have experienced that a lot with, obviously, the steel mills closing. Oh. Steel works, not steel mills. Uh, or did you move away before that all happened? So, the, I mean, Sheffield's in a really interesting place in so many ways. The fact that they've closed down. Sheffield has bloomed. 
It's a very alternative city. The cities around, um, are they cities? Well, the towns around, I think they are cities, um, which is where all the mining happened. Um, it was interesting when the mines closed down because mining is such a horrible job. For me, it's just like, why would anyone now, want to do that? That's a job that? that should be automated. Well, you say that. But then they closed down the mills, yeah, at the the mines, and um, some of the communities around where those mines were the kind of central piece of the community. Three year, uh, three generations later, they still haven't worked. They haven't, you know. There's massive suicide, depression, drugs problems, um, and it's not what it occurs to me is that it's. Uh, and, and we were talking earlier about universal basic income, which I think is which we'll come back to. Yes. Yeah. Um, What the mining job involved may have been horrible to me and you, but what the mine, what the mining communities were, were those people had a sense of purpose. They had a community of people um, who knew each other, who cared about each other. That they'd meet there. They had a reason for living. So that sense of purpose. And that sense of community is something that I think we've completely lost. Yeah, I mean, I was I was listening to a Radio 4 programme about what's the problem with housing in this country. And it was, uh, is he the chief architect? I assume he must have been somebody fairly senior, like at Reba. And he said, actually, what it is, it's not building on green belt, it's not building on brown belt. What we are building are estates with no community, no heart, no centre, no purpose. Yes. And he said, we know this. We know that we've built villages and towns with centres and grown. Yes. And now we don't do that. We just build rabbit hutches and, and blocks and blocks and bl- rabbit hutches or skyscrapers, you know, and, and tower blocks, you know, yes. and skyscrapers. And so, to your point, they lose all of that purpose, that community, that centre. But, but that grows with time. And what we try and do sometimes is plonk big things quickly and see how i mean it's all about profit it's yeah. all about short-termism short-termism well, shareholder value again voila um and i think you know i mean we were talking earlier as well about um so when i grew up i was a catholic um there was an incredibly strong sense of community with my church and we'd get together on a sunday um now i'm not religious now in any way right so that's quite a move from um, where you were to where you are but what i miss and I think what what the, what 2019 misses are those moments of commune with people around a shared understanding of the world. And it's funny because I'm an Irish Catholic. I think that, and oh no, this is a funny thing to say, and people will probably disagree with me. The religion wasn't so important. The mass on the Sunday was a time for people to come together and do a thing together. Right. So I think that sense of shared purpose, of shared ritual, of physical coming together is so important and we don't do it anymore so there's no moment there's no moment where we can focus on a thing together anymore we're all individually doing our individual things being terribly busy being busy and i think that's uh really unhealthy so social media was supposed to help us become more connected more empathetic more aware has it failed then I don't think it's failed. I think that life is a process of continuous improvement and learning. I agree with that, yeah. So I think what we can learn from what's happened with Facebook, and I've been the world's biggest advocate for social media, um, 
most of the kind of big social movement projects that I've done have used social media as the core. So the technologies themselves and the connectivity themselves are not what's at fault here. What's at fault here is, uh, and I'm going to take Zuckerberg as an example just because everyone does, but I think he gets, sen he gets singled out. And I don't think it's fair. He's being uh, demonised in a, in a way. I just think he's just got the biggest platform in the world, and he's easy to kind of poke important. a bear at. Yeah, you know, poke him with a stick and see what happens. I mean, the Catholic Church is potentially the biggest platform in the world, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not suggesting we poke a stick at the Vatican and, and the Pope. Well, we? although why not? Okay. Um, um, so I think the fault, what the fault is, is exactly what we were talking about before, that actually what Zuckerberg did as a child at university is fall upon a thing, which was I'm going to give people a platform where people can connect with Some each other. Some people say the Winklevoss brothers did it, but anyway. Th this, no, may be true. <laughs> this may be true. Um, and I, you know, I mean, my, the idea for me of democratisation, peer connections, all of that stuff is still, I hold very dear to me. But the business model that, Facebook's been built around is around advertising. It's around uh, getting as many eyes as often as possible in front of the screen so that they can see the adverts and get as much data as humanly possible, which was the next step on from that. Yeah. So then Zuckerberg, as a CEO, owes it, has a, has, it has to make sure he's keeping his, keep his, that he's keeping his shareholders happy which means that every decision that he's made about Facebook and the way that it's evolved all the way through that journey, which I'm sure was as big a surprise for him as it was for everyone else. Oh, no, I, I was reading, uh, I listened to a podcast with Kara Swisher and, and one of the original investors. Uh, at the point where he was offered to sell Facebook, he wanted to at a billion. He thought, wow, a billion. Yeah, I bet. And he was persuaded by Peter Thiel and Mark Andreessen and the other board not to sell. But uh, he did want to sell. Teal's a very, very smart cookie, isn't he? Yeah, worrying cookie as well, given he's a Republican and some of his thoughts. But yes, a very smart cookie. Th you know, we, we, could, we could go down the political yes, route, and let's do that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, again, I think I'm going to carry on my comments. So, so yes. it, it's his, it was his responsibility as the CEO to surround himself by the very best of the best to keep his shareholders happy. The shareholders, which he has to then report back to every quarter, short-termism, short-termism, Every decision that he made, including the Cambridge Analytica stuff, is to do with that. His business model says that he has to keep driving that growth. Now, well, not just him, every company has that. Every challenge. company, that's what I mean. I was, I was singling him out just because he's somebody who's being demonised, yes. and I don't think he should be. And I think we need to get to a stage, and I say we, I mean the people of the world in yeah. which we live, need to get to a place where people like him can be honest and politicians, and say, I got this wrong. I got this wrong. We got this wrong. Shareholders, we want to turn this round. We want to try something else. We need to get your support on this journey. And that's the only way we're going to be able to learn is by looking at what's actually happened. Uh, and let's not forget that, you know, it's 20 years that we've both been working in the Internet. It's a prototype. Well, I always say... The internet's still a teenager, fundamentally. Yeah, and it's a young teenager. Yeah, and, and it's got all the problems of teenagehood. Yes, yes. Good and bad. Good and, and bad because we didn't know what we were doing. We could just see that there, was, there were possibilities and being human, we were going to test those possibilities out. Yes. Some of those have been extraordinary. 
some of those have been really not so extraordinary you know so i agree with you we're dependent we've become dependent on technology to the point where and we were talking about wally earlier yeah the to film the, to the point where we've kind of forgotten what it means to be human what what makes us happy as humans which is you know real connectedness not i'm on a phone and you're on a phone you know i'm sitting in london on the tube every night 90% of people will be on their phone they will not look up from well, their phone if you look on medium today actually there's a guy in new york who's given up his phone and he's written a whole post about how he's watching everyone else so he's sat on a tube in america in new york without a phone yeah going back to that. but then i saw another great photo where everyone goes you know we're all sat on our phones blah 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 we're not communicating as if there was a time when we did because then they showed this picture from the 1950s of everyone with their newspapers up so we we have had a yeah. interface or yeah. distraction in front of us whatever that may be um, we aren't as let's say communicative as we think we should, could be no, we're not. And I, and, but, but I think the point I was trying to make is that what they've become very good at uh, with Facebook and its ilk is um, <coughs> driving addiction. Oh, completely. I mean, uh, I. so can I give you one quick story? I, the, yeah. Do you remember what... Um, I've never watched it, but do you know why soaps, Coronation Street and EastEnders are called soaps? I have no idea. So companies like Procter & Gamble invented that form of tv program so they could sell soap commercials in between i did not know that that's what they call soaps ah. and so the whole concept of it was to break a program up to keep you watching the advert then to go to the next segment and the program was the sub to the main advert okay um but we grew up in an age where there was limited television limited choice and um we grew up in a world where a program would finish on a week, whether it was a, an episode of whatever, not a soap even, right? And we'd have to wait a week for the next version. Uh, mine used to be Moonlighting with you know, Sybil Shepherd. I loved waiting for that. Um, <laughs> anyway, I, I digress. But that was how we did it. If you look at a book, we had chapters. So you'd read to a paragraph, you'd read to a chapter. And there was a natural breaking point in everything we had. So we could put things down and go away from it. If you look at the way that Zuckerberg and, let's say, um, Twitter and many of the other platforms are designed, they're designed not to have a break-in. So you go to the top of the wheel and you start reading, and there is no bottom, there is no break, there is no end, right? So yeah. the stream of information, and then you get FOMO because you put your phone down and you go, well, oh my God, that one important photo that all my friends are going to be talking about next i.e. not at our age but at a younger age is going to appear and i won't be the one commenting so i'll miss out so they stay glued to it so there is completely it, they've been designed yeah to keep them on that treadmill of information constantly and then we've created the um pavlovian behavior well, no, it's not pavlovian it's the dopamine behavior that's right yeah of i the little red dot appears <gasps> someone's liked what i've just put up you know, and it's just so sad. But that's what we've well, designed. That is the world we've designed. It is, and it's all... But there's so much to be learned from that. In what way? Uh, in the way that... In, you know, so um, the dopamine effect. Yeah. If you understand the way that the human brain works, you can... Um, so, you know, I, I was talking earlier about Dan Ariely. Yes. Dan Explain Ariely. who he is for those who don't know. Dan Ariely is a behavioural economist 
There was uh, Daniel Kahneman, who won the um, the Peace Prize for coining this phrase, the, the behavioral, behavioral economics. Um, Dan Ariely is the next generation on from him. So here, the, the two books that changed my life, the first one was called Predictably Rational. Uh, what this book poses is that all of our systems and frameworks have been built around one erroneous assumption. That erroneous assumption is that humans make rational decisions. Exactly. We do not. And that's what every economics textbook told us. Yes. And so uh, the second book, which is called The Upside of Irrationality, I feel like his agent here. I'm not getting a <laughs> kickback from that, but I do love him dearly. Um, is saying, but that's fine. Because once we understand the way we really make decisions and how our behavior is driven, once we understand the cognitive biases and the habitual behaviors and the social behaviors that drive everything that we do, then we can start to redesign systems and frameworks that actually get the best from people, that uh, encourage people to be the best they can be. So um, do I agree with the fact that Facebook and its ilk are so um, addictive and that are, have become incredibly smart at making damn sure that we're all addicted? No, no, that's not great. But all of that learning can be used to uh, encourage and inspire and support sustainable better behaviours as well. In the Going way. forward, yes. Yeah. yeah. So I think we've made some serious mistakes in the way that things have moved forward to this point but i think looking forward we're in a situation where uh where we understand so much more about how the human brain works and we because we've got affordable data at such scale we can start to understand the way that humans are within a social context um we're more connected than we've ever been before in the history of mankind person to person we're connected um, and then we've got AI, which, you, you know, whichever, machine learning, let's call it. Yeah. Let's be more realistic. Yeah, because most people say AI doesn't exist. Anyway, yeah. that's moving. Um, that's, that's splitting hairs. Yeah. Uh, but that means that we've got every single piece of the puzzle that we need at this moment in humanity to be able to create systems and frameworks that uh, encourage, reward, recognize people for being the best they can be and uh, evolving to a point which is more people-centric than it's ever been before. And I think that the mistake that we're making is presuming that we're on some kind of treadmill where we can't get off and that, that normal is normal. And like you say, normal only started 50 years ago. Yeah. The, the, so there's three or four questions I've got to rapidly throw at you because they're just going through <laughs> my head. So what is capitalism 2.0 look like? Because that's what we need. We need a new vision. We were talking about fundamentally capitalism's broken. Marxism isn't the answer. We don't need to flip-flop. Sadly, we're going back towards populism, a.k.a. Nazism, um, retrenching. Um, and yeah. that's not the model. So we, we, we need someone somewhere in the world. Obama was my hope, but, you know, he didn't last long enough and he couldn't come back. Um, but we need a visionary leader somewhere to give us hope, I think, as a planet. So what is capitalism 2.0 look like? What does work, therefore, look like within that model? Because if it's not for shareholder value, and can we break that model? Um, look, 
I'll, I'll leave the other two questions that are flying through my head in a minute. So, yeah, because that's a think? lot. Yes. Just like my head's now exploding. <laughs> so, um, is there, is there, I mean, I talk about conscious capitalism. Right. A lot. So the company that I've set up. Can you unpack that? What do you mean by conscious capitalism? Uh, I mean whereby um, you're not just focusing on profit, that you're focusing on people, profit, and planet. Because unless I'm missing something, those three things have to work together. And if they aren't, I'm not quite sure what future looks like. So what does future state look like when if we're purely focusing on profit? Oh, and by the way, um, this whole myth around constant growth isn't true, hasn't been true for years. We've been flatlining for years. Some companies have been making lots of profit, but the economy as a whole flatlined years ago. Yeah, and productivity did and everything else. Yeah. So unless we're looking at people, i.e. making sure people are thriving, that the economy is thriving, because without the economy, um, it, it, those things... And then if we're, if we're not looking at the way that, that what we're doing to make the profit is affecting the planet we're living on, then we're just stupid. And I don't believe that humans are stupid, actually. No, I, I, we, but we are walking towards self-destruction right now. I, I, we are. I, I liken us to either a, a, a locust on the planet or lemmings on the planet. I can't work out which we are because collectively we are destroying the planet. We are. And, you know, so, so one of the things that I learned, uh, I talk about zombie meerkats. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. But I would like the to thing. see them. <laughs> <laughs> When's the advert for that one on? Yeah, anyway, I, moving on. I just on. think I might actually yes. start a new toy range. Um, yeah, so one of the things that I learned at the UN, so I, I, uh, so I had a company. Um, yes, let's go back Yes. 20 minutes. <laughs> I, um, so there are a couple of things that I learned over the first few years of the company. Um, the open innovation stuff, you can bring the very best into large corporates and those best will get chucked out by the corporate antibodies. Uh, so then we realized that you need to start working on the inside of companies to try and help them figure out how to be more people-centric how to make them more connected, how to make them more resilient, all of the things that actually people talk about now. We started messing around with them, so kind of internal communications using digital, uh, innovation using digital. Um, but the other thing was we started this thing, which I think is when I first met you, which was called Between. Yes. So Between was an annual event uh, for the best of the best. Now, you did that in Birmingham, if I'm right. I did that in many cities. Okay. I remember the Birmingham one. So we moved around. So right. We did, uh, and actually, we did the very first ever multi-city uh, conference. So we had uh, the main conference was in Liverpool, but we also had connected conversations going on in Birmingham, in Newcastle, in Liverpool, and somewhere else. I don't know. Um, but the point of these, the, the reason that I started these events was because I could see that um, collaboration was really important, that we could be learning from each other. And actually what was actually happening is mobile were talking to mobile, uh, television was talking to television, advertising was talking to advertising. Meanwhile, all of this crazy stuff was going on in research and, in, you know, the, the SME, mm-hmm. you know, the small company. Yep. And so I thought, well, what we need to do is have a, a big community, which is cross-sector so that people can come together and really learn from each other. So what did I find out from that? What I found out that was that, well, that was a great idea. But because we're tribal 
And I understand now I know more about kind of the psychology behind all of this. I understand the why. But people would always stick to their own kind when we first start doing these events. So I started having to box clever. How do you figure out how you can build uh, an environment whereby over those two and a half days, people feel comfortably enough to be able to start collaborating with people who are different to them? Uh, and so we started building something into into that, which was which was workshops. On the first and the second day, uh, we'd put people in groups with people that they would never normally meet, you know, uh, super CEOs with students, uh, technologists with artists, just real mixture of people, and we'd give them a challenge. Um, it turns out it didn't really matter what the challenge was, but there always had to be some element of competition. And then the kind of tribal behaviours, which meant that the mobile would stick with the mobile, advertising with advertising. In that situation, because those different people were working towards a shared aim, suddenly they became like a mini-tribe. And because you brought a competition into it, the fact that their mini-tribe could actually win something at the end would bond these people. So, uh, and we experimented, you remember? I mean, those conferences were pretty mad. We mm -hmm. used digital, digital, digital. It was like a, an ex it was an experiential moment where people came together and uh, dropped all their boundaries, left their egos at home, and really start figuring out how they could work together. So that was my company. And then I got headhunted by the UN. Um, now, this I am fascinated by because... Yeah. Who gets headhunted by the UN? I'm not sure. I don't, and people keep saying, why did, you, why did that happen? I've got no clue. Things just happened to me okay. in my life. Probably because I was the only person who's stupid enough to try and take it on looking back on it. But um, my job was to take not just the UN, but the International Telecommunications Union, which is the bit of the uh, UN whose job it is to connect the world, <coughs> by which I mean it was set up 50 years before the UN started, uh, at a time when telecommunications first started out. So for us to be able to make a phone call from UK to Australia, um, not only did industry need to talk to each other, but policy needed to talk to each other so that we had global standards. So that was our job. So it's the part of the UN where industry meets policy. So it's the most complex organisation within the most complex organization which is the un and it was my job to take them through a digital transformation program oh okay right? okay and so um bright-eyed and bushy tail how do i know what the un is about i go there thinking wow it's going to be amazing because i'm used to working with corporates and and i'm going to be in a place where people really care about changing the world for the better that was what i thought when i got there on the first day what um, do you think on the second day I not so much, not so much. Now, I, having always worked from service provider side, i.e. we would go in and help big companies, suddenly I'm very senior uh, in the most hierarchical, bureaucratic, uh, fragmented, silo-bound uh, organisation. I just couldn't believe it. it was like stepping back into some other history. Um, and it was my job to take them, to drag them kicking and screaming into the digital age. But they were all parochial. They were all about their country and their values and their culture and their desires and wants. So they, they're all in it to get something out of it. But it, it was honest. I don't know if that's true. You could tell me differently. But my outside view is the UN isn't a united nations. It's a disunited nation that it, everyone competes. I just watch America versus Iran and Russia versus China. 
Yeah, I mean, the, I'm, so, so I'm talking about the, the, the organisation right. that I was working with and the way that we dealt with our stakeholders, so that means the, the, po- the policy people, yeah. but also our industry stakeholders. And it was, it was like, it was a mess. It was a mess to the point where my, I had a fairly large team. Uh, the woman who was my right-hand woman, I went in the second day there just thinking, oh, my God, what have I taken on here? Uh, walked into her office. She said, have you made an appointment? I was like, I'm sorry? <laughs> she said, uh, oh, yeah, we have to make appointments if we have meetings. Um, okay, but uh, I've just got here, so... And she, she just said, yeah, if you could just make an appointment. So, uh, and uh, another example. Um, so, first week I was there, I did what I would always do, which is I wanted to know who my team were. I knew we had a massive journey to go on and that my team were going to have to drive this so I took everyone out for a coffee uh the next thing I know I'm being called in to see the main man so cats I hear that you've been out for coffee with Regina yes I've been out for coffee with Regina could you explain yourself please so I'm looking at him thinking, has she reported me for something? Have I done something wrong? I'm going through my Rolodex of all of the things. Yeah. And eventually I just go, honestly, I've got no idea what the question is relating to. I took her out for a coffee because she's on my team and I want to know what does she love? What is she nervous of? What's she excited about? So that we can make sure we can all work together. Do you I think it's called building rapport. Voila. Do you know she's not even a P1 cat? I go, well, what am I? You're a D1 cat. And I'm saying, so you're telling me that I can't be seen out with one of my teams because she's not on the right level. So you can imagine. <laughs> I mean, OK, I get where that comes from. We were talked about earlier. Uh, I was an army officer. Yes. And um, I'm trying to relate that. As a captain, I wouldn't go out for a drink with a corporal. Right. Just, I'm, I'm wondering whether that's where that mentality came through I, d- I don't know what p1 and d1 mean but i'm trying to well, think i'm trying to think is that the mentality that came out of military where yes. levels wouldn't be seen to cohort with each other exactly you know that. you had the officers mess and in that you would never get an rsm or a sergeant come in right yes uh, and, and we would not as officers go and hang out in the squaddies with the squaddies it just wasn't done it wasn't done it's interesting that we're talking that y- y- Obviously, I don't come from a military background, but I think that uh, the operating models that we've used have partially come from the military, because that works, clearly. Um, Although we were also talking about the way that that model has been misused by corporates. Uh, And it also comes from a time when, uh, when we first, when the Industrial Revolution happened, and so what people were brought in to do in factories was to keep the machines running. Yeah. So when we talk about human resource, we're talking about human resource. They were just resource, so that. Yeah. Um, and so I think you're right that that has become a kind of that hierarchy, that bureaucracy. It possibly made some sense at some point in history, but to me, who's digital girl, who's always <coughs> worked in a company, my own company was totally flat, and obviously I'd seen the way the other company, but it just felt like the wrong. It's wrong on so many levels. And their operating model was is such so that, you know, I mean, it's tax-free. Shouldn't be saying this. So, uh, people, the incentivization model within the UN is such um, that people 
do not want to take a decision. And the, the normal for that organization is if we don't make a decision, eventually it will go away. And so everybody just keeps the head, we were talking earlier about this, uh, under the parapet. Yeah, yeah, keep, keep out the firing line and you'll be okay. Voila. Um, and so the entire operating model is about not wanting to do anything. Uh, and so the, what I was going to say is that um, I was there 2010, 2011. Uh, I went in there bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I very quickly realized that people, the, the operating, it wasn't the people, the people were beautiful. People are beautiful. The operating model, the incentivization model, the way that the, the whole structure was set up meant it was impossible for people to do anything. Um, so one of the things that I learned when I was there is we, it was 2010-2011. So 2012 was the Millennium Development Goals which the UN had set up to try and focus people on driving sustain the sustainability. Um, so me being geek girl, me seeing the immensity of the challenge we were going to have to go through, I'm thinking, okay, we need a North Star. We need to connect people towards a mission so that this change is going to be less painful. Um, so I wanted to use the Millennium Development Goals as a really good uh, way of getting people to remember why are we here as the ITU. So I asked a few people, and it took me a little while to realize, um, I asked a few people, so if we've got goals, the MDGs, uh, then we must have milestones and we must be collecting data because otherwise there's no point in having goals, right? Um, then you realize actually there is no data. And they weren't really goals. They were aspirations at very best. Right. Um, so just somebody's hopes. Yes. Okay. Uh, but kind of pointless because unless we're tracking it, then what's the point for me and my geeky mind? Um, so while I was there, I realized a number of things. One of them was that, oh, and by the way, the end of the year, the end of the story is the transformation program was incredibly successful. We ended up with six and a half thousand world leaders in Geneva at this massive event. We sold out all of our floor space. We connected with 10,000 school kids across the world using social media. So what do I think about social media? Well, I love it. Thank you very much when it's used in the right way. Um, so it was very, very successful. And I learned three things. One of them was I had no idea what state the world is in. But some of the conversations I was involved with while I was there were really, really depressing. And I was just saying, if, if this is the case, why aren't we doing something about it? Good question. Um, well, because we have a system of hierarchy in the world in which certain countries reap the rewards of others and others are left behind. Yes. I mean, without getting political. But that still means that we, as humanity, as the planet are all being affected by it. Oh, yeah, I mean... It's, it's insanity. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I won't go into it deeply, cause, but my view is if you go in... Because we went into two Gulf Wars for one reason. Um, uh, as an army officer, I used to train Iraqi soldiers, all right, officers, yeah. uh, at Sandhurst. And so they were, they were our friends until the oil thing started becoming an issue. So then yeah. we went in and had regime change. So that regime change was simply a case of we have no control anymore over the oil. We want control back, please. Yeah. And so we made that. And what we left behind was devastation and destruction and complete mess. Um, and we're doing it in Venezuela right now because yeah. um, they've got the massive oil reserve. And so we have a, a capitalist problem we were talking about. We also have an imperialistic problem. Uh, the West is an imperialistic state, America mainly, which 
you know, France, for example, uh, Gilets Jaunes, you know, came about because Macron said, you know, we've got to cut down on our uh, use of carbon fuels. So I'm going to put the price up. Oh, no, you can't put the price up. That affects us. No, 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 no. It's okay to do it somewhere else in the world. Yeah. They can cut back. They can, we're, we're not changing, yeah. right? We're not going to change the way we are. America, with its gas guzzlers, gas guzzlers even, try that way, is the same. We yeah. will not change. We want oil. We want this. This is the way our world works. So yes. we, we, we have systems in place that we won't change. So when you say, you know, the world is in a really bad place, it isn't a bad place because one end of the world is sucking the resources irrespective of what the rest of the world does. Um, Agreed. And we sit there uh, in our comfortable world. We're here in a beautiful day in Marlow by the River Thames. It's beautiful. I can, I can not imagine what some poor person who's been displaced in Syria whose house has been bombed feels like. But I do know that if someone came to Cookham Dean, where I live, and bombed where I live, I'd find out who they are and I'd become a terrorist, I guess. Oh, yes. that's what I'd be defined as because that's yes. a good label to define me as, as opposed to yes. somebody who's just angry at destruction around my house and the death of friends and whatever. It is. It's very difficult to imagine yourself in the in the shoes of someone else, for sure. Yeah, and so sure. we, we, we've set up a world... I mean, you know, again... There's been a big debate. We, we, we're not going to stay on this, by the way, because I want to get back to what you're doing. But, you know, Churchill, friend or foe, good or evil, you know, when, when he invented concentration camps in the Boer War, broke up the Ottoman Empire, yeah. killed 20 million Indians, blah, blah, blah. The list goes, but because of Dunkirk, he's a hero. A hero is fundamentally who writes, who wins the war, writes the history, right? But, but there's two sides to this. Anyway. I um, completely agree. And even the word itself, I find... Uh, yeah. yeah. His story, it depends very much on whose story you're reading at yeah. any point, for sure. And, uh, and on the and last. We have no memory. As, as a world, we have not had no. any memory apart from that. And what's scary is with Brexit, the civil servants named Brexit white paper Empire 2.0. And that got out. They didn't mean it to get out. And I, I have had online debates with people going. You know that word commonwealth? There was no commonwealth. The wealth went one way, right? There was no commonwealth. Yes. So if you think the commonwealth is just sitting there waiting for Britain to come back to do Empire 2.0 and just take all the wealth and gold and money and value back, dream on. You know, it ain't happening. We're not going back. And so going to your point, and let's get back on track because this will get me right <laughs> off track. Oh, my <laughs> Lord, get me off the soapbox. Um, I'm missing this out. Um, it's fun. <laughs> but fundamentally, um, you're in the UN. You've made transformation change. It's yes. worked. So... so um, well, no, let me, so, let, let me position sorry. you. So you, you've come out of university. You've started a company. You've seen some great ways to use digital transformation. You've gone in, created events. You've gone into the UN. Yep. You've used digital transformation, and it's yes. it's worked for you, right? You, you're yes. an enthusiastic believer in the the power of digital transformation and social media. But yes. now you're setting a focus with Beep, which is your company now, on on how you transform companies. And now, what I want to ask is, yes. are those companies now aware? Are they woke in the in the current terminology? Are they, are they, from 2003, when you were starting out with your first company and the events, 
are we here in 2019 people knocking on the door going cats i i get it now i really get it come and come and make this work for you or are we still in the yeah that's interesting but we have a department called digital and it's over there and we just get on with shareholder value and what we do anyway it's 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 uh there is no bulk answer to that what i can say is it's a very very different space because back in 2003 i could talk about what was going to happen there were going to be dinosaurs who were going to fall off the edge and there were going to be talent magnets and that's not a question anymore however human beings um, resist change and hold on to what we have and therefore are there enough conscious leaders by conscious leaders i mean leaders who know that if they set up the right environments across their company and allow people to be the best they can be within their company they're going to be more successful because do you know what people will want to work with them oh and by the way they're going to stay with you here's a statistic that i've just been playing around with recently so um for did you know to replace a person who's highly trained or is a senior leader to get them back up to speed cost 213 percent of their annual salary oh, so get so them that, back up to speed on what so where, where have so, they gone so if you're so if you when you hire someone it costs the recruitment and then you have to onboard them oh, I see. they have to yes. understand the politics yeah. they have to and you know all of those things actually get you to a point whereby you can work inside a corporate effectively efficiently productively 213 percent of their annual salary so then if you look at an example of a company that has a hundred thousand a hundred thousand people uh and if we say that then their average salary is thirty five thousand pounds a year and if we say they have a churn level of 15 percent and believe you me um in many of the companies that I work with, the churn rate is a lot higher than 15% because people are so disgruntled. Mm. And you're mm. talking about then, uh, uh, say, an average of you know 150% of the annual salary of then. You're talking about billions of pounds every year, which is being chucked away by companies purely because they're not looking after their people. Because if people are not happy in work and they don't feel rewarded, they don't feel recognised, they will move on. But and what's worse than that is the people who move on are the people who can get jobs. And so the best leave, and then your middle ranks are suddenly your top ranks, and then you're starting from scratch, bringing a whole bunch of people in to, by the way, a culture which is going to be exactly the same as it was before unless you make radical improvements or you really spend some time thinking through about how you're going to change your culture. Um, so there's a very good economic reason whereby it becomes an imperative for leaders to start figuring out how they can change their culture and how they can be more digital, how they can be more resilient, how they can build um, uh, an acceptance and an ability to be able to deal with this rapid and accelerating change. Um, so it's changed a lot in that way. So, but and also, I think because there's been like when we first started on digital transformation, that's nearly, you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, people have spent a lot of money and a lot of time buying in licenses for uh, various platforms, which they still think some people still think you can just plug in and suddenly it will change everything and everything well, will be do- more efficient. It does in some ways. I mean, like, to the negative, but yeah. Me- you know, email came in. We thought that was going to make efficiencies. Right. Uh, 
inbox zero became a thing. I mean, I, I have 22,000 emails in my inbox, right? I don't read them all. I don't have to. I pick and choose. Google can index it for me and I can search for it, right? Yeah. But, but when did I end up with 22,000 bits of content sent at me, right? So that's a crazy thing. So yeah. inefficiency. So then people go, well, email's inefficient, so let's find the next system. So it's Slack is the current one today. Or it was salesforce.com and pe- people didn't fill the right forms in, so that became irrelevant. And so we, we keep yeah. trying to build systems in to yeah. make efficiency, but we don't do it. And is, is that what you're saying? We don't. And the reason that they're not working is because, okay, so then we're back to my favourite moment of a harness, uh, which, again, looking at the kind of psychology behind change. Um, we have two key states. The first one, which we evolved so that we could keep social groups together. Humans, as a species, are so successful because we're extraordinarily good at keeping social groups together. Um, And so um, in the reward state, we're innovative and collaborative and um, all of those things that you want people to be. Um, And then we have the fight or flight mode or the threat mode. Um, which means that, and we evolved that, so that if we were being charged by a large growly creature wanted to eat us, we could run away. Uh, and so in the threat state, innovation, communication, uh, collaboration, all of those things are just not very important. All that's important at that second is that you're on uh, it so that you can run away as fast as possible. So when you're in that stress, threat state, all you want to do is run away and hide. That's your natural um, we have six times more neural pathways which are constant, which are geared to looking for threat. So then if you, and interestingly enough, we actually look for threat six times every second. Our eyes are checking to make sure that nothing's coming that might be dangerous. So if you then transport that, and bearing in mind that our brains have hardly changed at all since the beginning of mankind, and we still, our brain still operates in those kind of... Um, tribal almost animalistic ways yeah yeah. um every time if we move then to a social or or a corporate environment every time that change is done to people every time you bring uh, whether it's a reorg uh, a merger new way of working new technology if that comes at people from out of the blue their immediate physiological response is to go (gasps) I don't like it. What does this mean to me? Is this well, a threat? it's because we have to learn new behaviours. Yes, and that's the most uncomfortable thing for people. And so what then happens, if you do try, anyway, try to do change to people, that um, uncomfortableness uh, then manifests as a number of things. I can't use it. It's the wrong decision. The way that people express that dis-ease that are unease with the way that this change is being presented to them is people just resist it. So by my calculations, if you look at the failures in M&As, the failures in reorgs, the failures in new way, all of these things that we're all trying to do to try and be future-proof and more digital, all this, um, I reckon we're wasting about $11 trillion every year globally on failed transformation. <clears throat> and it's not the transformation that's a fault because there is no option companies need to change the way they're operating so i i wonder going back to your first point though on on tribes and size of tribes so there's dunbar's uh number which is 150 people beyond that we can't really manage these social interactions and i wonder whether 
the economies of scale and Tom Peters and the, the whole thing about companies have to be large and big um, has caused us as humans, because you said the brain hasn't really evolved, yeah. to try and fit in our 150 Dunbar number within a 20,000 company, which we just don't handle well. So because we can't handle it, we just don't work within that environment very well. So um, there's a Nobel Peace Prize winner called uh, Roland Kors, and he wrote his book called The Diminishing uh, Law of Firms. And it's the size of firms where he said you have to break firms up to be small units where you outsource context. So if your job is to be um, a digital transformer, right, then you can outsource cleaning lawyers, accountants to another small firm. But what we've done in the past is taken all of that in-house and grown companies to bigger bigger sizes. Is that mm. fundamentally maybe the connection between we are as humans not an evolved species as much as we think we are, where we have limitations on our brain, our capacity to communicate and engage and collaborate. Yep. But we're throwing ourselves into companies that have to hit shareholder value and grow and merge and get bigger. And we don't, and we've, we, we're butting heads against the two things. Well, aren't I th- we? Yeah, I think, I think uh, the biggest thing for me, I mean, yeah, we can do that. And there's all sorts of new operations, well, actually, not even new operations. What we're doing is we are so focused on the end that we've forgotten the biggest problem. And the biggest problem is always, because people always will be the most expensive asset within a company. Which is why so, we're trying to get them off the book. Yeah, but we... Because so of shareholder value. No, exactly. And But it's the wrong... Exactly. It's the wrong solution. We both violently agree. The solution is, how do we get to a situation where people care about what they're doing that they're and if they care and they feel safe in an environment back to the reward state then they're more productive then they're more efficient then they're more effective they get less ill i mean i could give you statistics which i'm not going to do because i can't remember them but every <laughs> get you know, i out. could spend <laughs> and i write about this a lot the statistics are super clear it's like if people are engaged if people feel valued um, they will work for you over the odds. If people feel connected to the people around them, they will work harder. Right. It's it's common sense. It Unfortunately, is. common sense is not very common. But you talk about purpose of job, purpose of people. Yes. Can I ask you a question then? What is the purpose of a firm? Um, I think every single organisation has to have a purpose, but that's not what I'm talking about because an organisation is only... And this is something else that we seem to forget. It's not a machine. It's a fabric of connected or disconnected people. Now, why I ask that question is because it goes back to what I said earlier. Cadbury's, John Lewis had yep. a purpose. It wasn't profit maximization. It wasn't shareholder value. Yes. It was to grow the community, to be within the community. So as a human within those companies... You felt proud. Yeah, and yes. you, yeah, and you had purpose because the yes. company had purpose, right? Yes. And what I think we've lost is companies have lost purpose. They they are there to yes. affect the one percent of sh- directors, shareholders, the top one percent who make the money out of it all. No, I completely agree. And, and I, I, people within that become a cog. They lose purpose, and that's why I was asking, what is 
do we have to find companies a purpose again? I think, yeah, and, I, we, you know, and I've spent a lot of time helping companies because that's an important part. Um, the leadership need to get to a position where they understand where they're adding value to society as a whole. That's without a question a really important thing. But then if you break that down to an individual level, what's happened now, because companies are so big and because they're so disconnected, each individual within that corporation doesn't really know what they're doing, where what they're doing adds to the whole. So not only do they not know what the purpose of their company is, they don't really know what their purpose with the company is so um uh, and there was a t there was a brilliant article which was called and i'm not going to say it because we're on radio um it was uh bs jobs right and it was about the fact that actually here's a stat 87 percent of the worldwide workforce is disengaged 87 percent which is bonkers uh, and i i started using that stat to try and catalyze some sort of reaction um, but what happens is when I'm sat with a leader talking about 87% of the worldwide workforce is disengaged, every time they say, I'm surprised it's not more. Wow. That's right? not what I expected you to say. So That is bonkers. And so what I'm saying is if people feel that they're going in every day doing meetings uh, having conversations, nothing really needs to anywhere. They don't get any reward and recognition for what they're doing. They're not really allowed to connect with people in other silos because that's not facilitated within the operating model. People don't have a sense of individual purpose. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And um... and so, and and so that for me is the biggest problem. It's if people are coming in to work every day just to do their job. And interestingly enough, I've been on a couple of panels recently um, where I've talked about a future of work where people care about what they're doing, where they feel rewarded and recognized, where they understand where their little bit of effort is actually adding to the whole of the company yeah. and therefore blah, blah, blah. Uh, and twice I've had people say, yeah, but that's just dreaming. Some people want to get up, just go and do their job and come home. And I say to them, why would, if somebody had the choice of doing something they care about or just going in and doing their job and coming home, why would anyone choose the just doing the job? Nobody's going to choose that by choice. You know, that's not an option. Um, and so that's what we've been working with, with the business. It's like, how do you figure out how you can get the workforce back on board? How do you give them an opportunity where they can genuinely feel that their input is rewarded, recognizing, making a difference, and where together though that community, which is a company, is uh, going through a process of continuous engagement, which is driven by the intellect and the wisdom and the experience of the people that make up that community, which is a company. So <clears throat> I think that's great. But I think within that environment that you're working in, I think we have the bigger problem. I think capitalism is a failed model. I think the size of companies is now beyond the need. And I think shareholder value is no longer the purpose. No, agreed. And I think those all need to change before or while people have purpose. I mean, we are beginning to see with Google, I think this week with Microsoft, um, Amazon recently, employees, not unions, taking back some sort of oh, control. Well, exactly. 
you know, saying, I don't want you to sell facial recognition yes. to the government. I don't want that to happen. This is my company as well. I'm a stakeholder in the company. And the purpose of me coming to work is to help build a search engine that will do good. You know, I don't know when Google dropped the Don't Be Evil moniker, but, but that was a wonderful sentiment as a company. When Schmidt got brought in. Yeah, maybe. Completely. The, yeah. the corporate man came. Yeah. Um, but How do we scale? But that's that sort of purpose where people had a collective culture yes. and want. I think that's what we have to find. But yes. again, size has diminished diminish that and shareholder requirement has diminished that where Google's, you know, moonshots now, I think the CFO killed half the moonshots because it wasn't productive. It wasn't driving shareholder value. And I think... No, right. So people are coming are leaving Google quite a lot because they are dissatisfied now the company's got to a size where... They have I no purpose. Is it? I'm, I'm posing no, no, this as a question. Is it to do with size or is it to do with the fact that the leadership have lost track of the fact that if you don't build a culture in which people can shine, um, it, it's, it's more to do with the fact that they've forgotten the cultural piece. It doesn't matter how big your company is. So Bracken from Logitech, he calls it a big company disease where it's like you get to the point where... Um, everyone's working together towards a whole. And then you get to this point where actually the board, it's their job to build business models. And of course, they're looking at the customer and they're looking at how blah, blah, blah. So they've got this outward looking business driver. And then you've got all of the people on the ground. And whether they be in production or retail or whether they're in a call center, they're having to deal with customers on a daily basis. So they can see exactly where the problems are. And then there's this frozen middle, this marzipan layer in the middle, you know, these layers of bureaucracy that get built into corporations. Um, and it's their job to look inwards to make sure the company operates. And so they completely lose sight of what customer might want and need. So the, the question is not the size, because you can actually have a big company that operates like a small company if... You can figure out how you can have an operating model that allows uh, people to communicate and support each other across all of those layers. And when I'm talking about layers, that those layers themselves can be liquid. And that actually you can have... Uh, and so what? going back to Beep, um, so what Beep does, it's a platform uh, which invites and rewards and recognises people for talking about the things that get in the way of them doing their best work because there is nothing more frustrating than having to go into work every day and do a thing that you know isn't adding to anything or anybody. In fact, it's just probably irritating people and irritating yourself. And you've got no sense of purpose because you're having to do this thing that you know is a waste of time. And so what happens now is I might say to my manager, why are we doing this thing? Or I keep hearing the same complaint. And my manager will probably say to me, oh, it's the way we do it. Just do it. And the chances are that then that manager is not going to report that up because the way the operating model works is they just want to impress the people at the top. So what filters through then to the top is some sort of diluted mishmash of what might be going on. Um, and so our challenge then was a number of things, but the first one was how do we figure out how we can build a platform that gives people an opportunity to be able to A, say where the problems are, and B, do something about it. So they retain, so they regain that sense of purpose. 
Uh, and so that's what Beep does. It gives people, uh, it's uh, gamified and social and machine learning and all those great tech things. But essentially, it's a platform whereby people can say, this is not working for me. And if enough people across the whole organization are saying, this is not working for me either, and there's all sorts of clever ways where people can communicate and connect. But if enough people are talking about the same problem, the people who are most engaged with that particular problem are brought together into design thinking workshops to find solutions. So essentially, each one of those design thinking workshops, which is peer moderated and all of those good things, is a moment where those people can connect around a shared challenge and find a little solution, a little fast fix for that solution. So it basically means that they become um, useful again. Or company. feel useful as feel well. Feel useful. Yeah. Have a purpose again. Have a purpose again. It's like actually they have a chance to wake up again, to connect with people. They're trusted to be a problem solver. And when people are trusted to be so problem solvers, it's incredible what happens. They wake up again. Oh, so are you telling me that I can actually do this myself? Yeah. They're because engaged. the truth is there is no... It, you know, I think there's... And something else I learned at the UN, there are no big answers. I think we like to feel that somebody somewhere must have the answer. There are no big answers, but there are lots and lots and lots and lots of little fixes to the solutions. Kat, we could talk all day. I know we could. Um, I think it's been amazing to understand your digital transformation. Uh, thank you very much for coming in today. And um, where can people find out more if they want to find out more? So uh, they can connect. I'm all over social media. So I'm, I'm at Catsy on Twitter, uh, Cats Keeley on LinkedIn. Uh, our website is wearebeep.com, wearebeep.com. So you can always reach out to me there. Um, yeah. So you, just to sum up, so you think we can make the changes? You think you're optimistic about the future then? I am 100%. So what I haven't said about Beep is that... that Leaving the UN left me with a desire to try and fix the entire challenge here, which isn't just about profit, it's about people and purpose. So every time we sell a license to a corporate to help them go through cultural transformation to drive profit and make sure people feel engaged, uh, we also gift one to a not-for-profit network. Great. So my dream... Uh, is that actually if we're in large distributed networks of people that we call companies, getting them to operate in a way whereby they become accountable problem solvers and come together around shared challenges, and we're doing the same thing inside not-for-profit networks, then actually what we end up with is not the Internet of Things, which we're completely obsessed with, putting a chip in this so it can talk to a chip in that, but an Internet of people who are awake and accountable and who kind of have the tools to be able to learn from each other to connect around the things that they care about so that's our vision wonderful Kat Skeely thank you very much for sharing your story thank you okay so we'll be back next week on uh, Marlow FM and uh, until then Sam says he's saying thank you very much and speak to you soon bye Thank you, Sam. That show was amazing. To listen again, please visit our website, marlofm.co.uk, or visit our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology. And now you can subscribe on iTunes. Never miss a show again. See you next week. Same time, same place.